Right. Thank you very much for having me this morning, and I bring you greetings from St. John's in uh, Macquarie Street, and uh, it's good to be able to help one another out, and uh, we should do this more often. Uh, let, me, uh, let me start by telling you that earlier in the year, Rachel and I went to see a film uh, at the State Cinema, which was called The Bookshop, and it's a very British film, very British set in the 1950s in a seaside town in England. And the lead character is a woman whose name is Florence Green. Her husband has died and she has bought an old house in the town that she lives in and she's going to turn the old house into a bookshop. Uh, Bill Nye is in the film as well and he's all elbows and angular sort of edges and quirkiness and he moans through each of his scenes in classic Bill Nye style. But in the town, uh, there is a, an, a woman who is very upper crust. She's a castle-inhabiting noble woman. And she has decided that she doesn't like Florence Green, who's going to open this bookshop. And the whole town ends up conspiring against Florence Green because of this castle-dwelling noblewoman... And so the film ends, uh, spoiler alert, with Florence Green leaving the town in tears. Uh, She's full of shame and disappointment uh, because she's been run out of town, all her assets are gone apart from a few boxes of books and that's how the film ends. Emily Mortimer is the woman who plays uh, Florence Green. She was interviewed about the film And she said, the bookshop is an anti-American dream story. You can try and try and try at something and still fail, which I think is most of our experiences of life. Now, I like that she said that, and uh, I like that the film was made, because she's right, I think. We can try and try and try at something and end up not succeeding. Life is very hard, and sometimes, sometimes... Try as we might, things end in tears. Uh, Preparing for this sermon, I watched a review of the film from three American film critics, and uh, and they hated the film. They said it was all too sad and slow and depressing, too English, they said. That's because they were too American. I couldn't disagree more with them, though. The bookshop, for me, is a bit like the wisdom literature in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, Books like Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and, and Job, where we learn that sometimes good things happen to bad people and sometimes bad things happen to good people. So I think the, the bookshop is a great film. It's a film about wisdom. And even though it was set in the 1950s, it was terrifically up to date, I think, which is why the American film critics just didn't get it. You see, we need films like The Bookshop, films that show failure and disappointment and that end in tears because that's, for many of us, so much is what, uh, like what our life is about. And the sooner we realise that as children and the better we understand as adults uh, that, that sometimes things end badly for us, then the more authentic we can be and the more present we can be in the life that God has given us to live right now. Unless we learn to become resilient in the face of life's buffering, then we will always be disappointed 
and will always have the sense that we are being singled out for unfair treatment by everyone around us. And unless we find a purpose in life which will survive the disappointments of failed bookshops and daily grind jobs and being less attractive than our younger sister and being less ambitious than our father or not achieving the success that we'd hoped for or failing to to be able to climb the stairs in our home, unless we find a purpose that is bigger than all of those things, unless we can find a reason for living in the face of failure, we will find that our life becomes a very dark place in which we are suffocated by our own sense of shame and disappointment. And this psalm gives us that bigger purpose for life that we all so desperately need. And it answers the question that it asks itself in verse 4. What is man, what is humankind, that you, God, are mindful of him? Or to put it another way, who am I, God? What is my purpose? Why am I here? And I want to say, when we, when we know the answer to that question, then we can know who we are meant to be and we can live an authentic, a life as an authentic, real, present human in the world that we are a part of. And there are three things I want to, I want to talk about. I want to, I want to make two points and then a third. The first point is don't believe the hype. Don't believe the hype. Second point, you're more glorious than you think you are. So they're the two points I want to make. And then at the end, I want to introduce you to the truly authentic human. So don't believe the hype. You're much more glorious than you think you are. And I want to introduce you to the truly authentic human. So first point, don't believe the hype. The first thing I want you to see, and you will have, as Ralph read this, uh, this, this psalm to us, you would, have, you would have seen that it begins and ends with the same words. The beginning of verse 1 and the end of verse 9 are the same words. O Lord, O Lord, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. These are like bookends to the psalm. Now, when the Old Testament speaks about God's name, it's speaking about his character or his fame. It's about who God is. And we can see from the second half of verse 1 that the Lord has set his glory above the heavens. He is a clue as to who he is. He is sovereign over everything. He set his glory above the heavens. He's, he's bigger, he's beyond us. He's other, he's transcendent. It doesn't mean that he's far away. Transcendence doesn't mean distance. It's that he's Lord over all. He is sovereign. And so this sovereign Lord is praised at the beginning and at the end. At the beginning and at the end of the psalm. It's the chorus that the singers sing at the, as they begin and end this psalm. But as we look through the psalm, we'll find actually that God is more than just at the beginning and the end of this psalm. He's actually pulsating all through it. Let me read you this psalm quickly and I'll, I'll emphasise a few words as I go. O Lord, our Lord, 
How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens from the lips of children and infants. You have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe of the, of the, foe of the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man? Your mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honour. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and beasts of the field, the lords of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim in the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, I'm glad Raph didn't read the Bible like that to us when uh, he came up a little while ago. But you can see the point. God is, God is throbbing through this psalm. I said at the beginning that this is a psalm that answers the question, who am I? What is my purpose? But David is not going to let us rush to answer that question too quickly. Because I, we, come second in this psalm. And actually that, friends, that is a massive clue for you when you're asking, who am I? If you want to know, if you want to find out who you are, then you need to understand that God needs to come first. Only when God comes first, only when you understand that actually you don't get to ask, who am I, until you've understood who He is, only then is there a possibility of you knowing who you are. It's only when you move yourself from the centre of everything you do and read and commit yourself to. It's only when you move yourself to the outside and God to the centre that you will begin to know who you are and you'll begin, to, you'll, you'll begin to sense the anxiety lift. One commentator helpfully says, we can only learn to, to say the words human being after we have learned to say the word God. Before we come to our place in the universe, we need to acknowledge His place. We need to see how we fit around Him, not how He fits into us. Uh, Hugh Mackay is one of Australia's most respected social researchers. He's a demographer. He believes that there is a type of parenting in our country. He said, I don't think he's a Christian, this guy. Hugh Mackay believes there's a type of parenting in our country that is in fact ruining our children. He, 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 he says there are some parents who are raising their children to believe that those children are the centre of the universe and that those children can, can do anything they set their minds to. Now, we hear that, don't we? And, uh, you know, every, every winner of MasterChef says, uh, this, is just the, this is just a wonderful story, you can do anything you want. Well, frankly, I, want, I, I really wanted to be a jockey. <laughs> and I thought, if I set my mind to it, I could race horses. But see, I'm 110 kilos and that's two jockeys <laughs> plus the saddles. Sometimes you just can't do what you said. You can do it. You can be whoever you want to be. Seize your dream. Go absolute rubbish. And I'm proof. Hugh Mackay identifies in the modern Western culture a disease which he calls the utopia complex, a world we dream of and think we're entitled to with outcomes that are always positive for us. The victims, he says, of this way of thinking are children brought up in an atmosphere of constant praise by parents who think self-esteem is more important than self-respect or self-discipline. 
Bewilderment, he says, bewilderment, confusion and ironically self-doubt come from unrealistic expectations and eventually the shock of hitting the real world where most people do not in fact shine more brightly than other stars around them hurts them. Now, last year, this is now I'm leaving Hugh Mackay aside, last year the National Youth Mental Health Foundation reported that in university and TAFE campuses around Australia there are as many as 70% of students who are reporting high to very high levels of psychological distress. 70% of university and TAFE students are exhibiting high to very high levels of psychological stress. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. But a good proportion of psychologists now believe that living your life for likes on social media or retweets or comments about how hot you look when you post photos of yourself and how amazing you've done is actually beginning to take its toll. I heard a joke during the week about a scarecrow. Uh, sick joke of the day, we'll call it. Uh, why did the scarecrow receive an award? Because it was outstanding in its field. <laughs> we live in a society, in a culture, don't we, in an era where everyone gets awards. Every person who plays in a junior soccer team gets a trophy. Every person. And there's hollow praise and they go away feeling as though I've got a trophy in the under 11 soccer team. Uh, next stop, Socceroos. <laughs> this psalm cuts through the hype. Cuts right through the hype. And it says, you know, you're actually not the centre of your world. Don't believe the hype that people want you to believe about yourself. Compared to God, you are very small and you're very weak. And that's who you are. Embrace it. Own it. Love it. You're not God. What a relief. Stop living as though everyone should worship you. Compared to God, you are very weak. Verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? Compared to the enormity of all that God has done, who am I? that he should care for me. I am here today and gone tomorrow. On the, on the scheme of eternity, if there was a tape measure that ran from this wall to that wall, which measured eternity, now of course I'm, it's eternity so it's going to be much bigger than that and it won't have ends. <laughs> Your life is like a tiny line on that piece of tape. And yet... We make so much, don't we, of that little faint line that we can barely see on the scheme of eternity. <coughs> Who am I, says David, that you should think anything of me at all? Some commentators, and I think that I can imagine this could be right, believe that David the king is writing this and imagining himself as David the shepherd boy lying on his back with his sheep out in the paddock somewhere, looking up at the stars and just being blown away by the enormity of all that he's seeing above him. Who am I, this little shepherd boy? 
Who am I? This little Presbyterian minister or who are you, whatever you are? I don't get to ask the question, who am I though? Until I get some perspective, until I stand back and consider the work of God's hands. Until I feel again the weight of his power and I acknowledge again that I'm insignificant, that I'm small. I don't even begin to understand who I am until I learn to again worship God as though I were a little child. So that's the first point, friends. Don't believe the hype, particularly the hype that you tell yourself about yourself. But that's only half the story because from verse 5 we go on to read about the glory of humanity. And the second point I want to make is this, you're actually more glorious than you think you are. David asks the question in verse 4, who am I? And along with him we feel tiny and we're put up against the majesty of God and we're like a bit of dust that's blown away. But then from verse 5 he brings another perspective to the table, a totally different perspective and we find that we have been made, in David's words, a little lower than the heavenly beings. Now there are a number of different interpretations about this. Some commentators say, uh, I'm talking about who are the heavenly beings. Some, some say they are celestial beings and angels and we've been created a little lower than them. And they could be right, although I think the Bible would actually tell us that we are created we are more glorious than the angels because the angels long to look into things that we have been, have been shown. So I don't think that, I don't think that David here is, saying, uh, is talking here about angels. I agree with the commentators who say that David here is talking about God himself. We have been made lower than God, but only a little lower, see? We are less than God, but only a little bit less than God. Uh, the anthropologist uh, Desmond Morris has written that human beings are animals. They are sometimes monsters, sometimes magnificent, but always animals. Now, there is some truth in that. We see in Genesis uh, that we were created on the same day as the wild animals and we share creatureliness as the wild animals do. So we do share something in common with them, but they are not equal with us. We are more than naked apes. For in Genesis 1 and 27 we read that God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. Yes, we're under God. Yes, he rules over us. Yes, we're small compared to him. But of all of God's creation, we're the only ones who've been made in his image and who've been crowned with glory and honour. Regardless of how many followers you have on Instagram, regardless of how many people tell us we're beautiful, when we post pictures of ourselves, we are all crowned with glory and honour. You might not have realised it, friends, but you have never met an ordinary person. You've never met anyone who does not bear the mark of God in their being. You've never met anyone who God has not given a crown of glory and honour to. Even the most defenceless and forgotten people in our society are people whom God considers to have enormous and immense dignity, which is why you find Christians at the forefront 
of caring for the aged and of arguing against uh, euthanasia laws. It's why you find Christians looking after those who are not yet born. They are already wearing their crowns of glory and honour inside the womb. That's why you find Christians looking after the disabled. Um, I, I'm not a prophet, but I wonder that in 50 years from now, it might be that the children, or that, that, that those who've grown up in, that the churches will be the only institutions in the world who have disabled people in them. Which will look remarkably like the churches did in the first century when abandoned women were brought into the family of God. You know, these days, every time, every time I see a child, let's say less than 20, a child or youth with Down syndrome, I stop and thank God. Here is a life. Here is a person who has been given dignity and honour in who they are. You see, friends, we do not become more glorious by having a girlfriend or by having a boyfriend or by being married. We do not become more glorious by having children or grandchildren. We do not become more glorious in God's eyes or in the eyes of the Christian community by getting on the 1% as in NAPLAN. We do not become more glorious by finding ourselves picked in great sporting teams and going off and representing our state or our country. We do not become more glorious by dressing provocatively so that people notice us. We do not become more glorious in God's eyes by signing up to a Presbyterian church or by having our theology right, or by voting in a certain way, or by having an ideology of a certain colour or stripe. Our glory as human beings, in God's eyes, comes simply by having been created by Him. Who am I? Who are we? Yes, we're small. But oh my goodness, we are glorious. We are glorious. We are more glorious than we realise. That person who annoys you, who makes it hard for you, who sometimes you think you might not go to church because they're going to be there, they are as glorious as you are. Who are you? to find them annoying. They're wearing a crown. Who am I? Who are you? You are more glorious than you realise. Verse 6 says, you've been made, in fact, to rule over the works of God's hands. He's put everything under our feet, all flocks and herds and beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. God made, in other words, God has made the world, he's left us in charge. He has made us rulers and stewards over his creation. Uh, some of you might know, uh, I'm still driving the first car I ever owned and it was very old when I got it at 18. So it's a 1967 HR Holden, I drive it every day and I love that car. 
If I give you the keys to my car to drive, I expect you to love that car and to treat it with the, with the dignity and honour that it deserves. Right? I love that car. And if you love me, you will love that car. God has given us the keys to his creation and he loves it. And we're to love it too. He's made the world, he's left us in charge, which means we need to look after the world just as he would. We're to rule over creation as we allow God to rule over us. Now I've got to say, it is absolutely wonderful as a preacher to preach on Psalm 8 and just to, to, to preach like this, about this stuff. Everywhere I go, you see normally in the Bible, I'm confronted with my sinfulness and how bad stuff is. And, 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 I, and I, as a preacher, okay, I've got to preach on the doctrine of sin again this week and again this week and again this week and I've got to apply it and people are, And then I get to Psalm 8 and think, thank goodness, no sin. I've enjoyed telling you, let me tell you about how glorious I am and, uh, and you're glorious too, by the way, it's been wonderful. It's been wonderful just to talk about the positives, about what God's saying in his word. It's been, fun, it's been kind of been fun to think of myself as the king of the world. Haven't you enjoyed that? Thinking of yourself like that? The king, the ruler of the world, got the keys to God's creation. So good to be able to come to Psalm 8 and to be able to preach about this. But I, gee, I need to be careful. We all need to be so careful because as we look around us, as we look at the world, how do you think we're going? How do you think we're going as the rulers of God's creation? How are we going as, with the keys to, keys to the world? Are we doing a good job? Is the, is, the, is the world being ruled well? How are we going caring for the environment, do you think? Are we looking after the God's creation the way that he wants us to? Or are we allowing dollars and rubles and the people's currency of China to have priority over air quality and the health of the barrier reef and native vegetation. Uh, in the 80s, uh, I, I, my parents got a shack on the east coast, we go there frequently. Uh, in the 80s I remember that off St Helens on the east coast of Tasmania there was found amazing stocks of orange roughy fish Orange Ruffy were, were the delicacy before Travala, which we now call Blue Eye Cod. Orange Ruffy off St Helens. And so it seemed as though every fishing boat in Tasmania headed for St Helens. Here was this most incredible fishery. And they pulled tons and tons and tons of Orange Ruffy up out of the ocean to sell. But of course they caught so many that the, the market was exhausted and there was no more, it was saturated, they couldn't sell them and so I remember watching TV in the 80s, uh, a report from the St Helens tip of these massive trucks backing into St Helens tip and lifting up the back and hundreds of tonnes of orange roughy were poured onto the tip because they weren't able to be sold and now you can't catch orange roughy off the east coast of Tasmania. How are we going, you think? looking after our creation. And how are you going looking after your own little world, your own life? How are you going ruling over that? I can't even rule over my own being 
let alone the world that I inhabit, this psalm paints a magnificent picture of the world. We see the glory of God, we see the glory of humanity, but as I look around me, all I see are the effects of sin. I see it in me, I see it in you, I see it in everywhere, in everyone I encounter. I take funeral after funeral after funeral. We can't rule over death. No one rules like the man in this psalm and no one ever has. Or have they? The Bible tells us that there is a man who has everything under his feet. A truly glorious, authentic human who lived perfectly under God's rule. I want to finish by introducing you to him, to this truly authentic human. This is my third point and I'm nearly finished. I want to finish by telling you about this truly glorious, authentic human the man who is the perfect fulfilment of everything this psalm is speaking about, I want to tell you about Jesus. This truly glorious human. Let me read to you from uh, the second chapter of the letter to the Hebrews. I'll read it to you. I I won't ask you to turn to it. It is not to angels that he, that's God, has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, But there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, you crowned him with glory and honour and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, that's us, in putting everything under him, humanity, God left nothing that is not subject to him. There's nothing that's not under us. Yet at present... We do not see everything subject to us. We are not ruling over everything. Everything is not under our control. Everything is not under our feet. But the writer to the Hebrews goes on, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour. How is he crowned with glory and honour? The writer goes on, because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. We can't rule over sickness and death. We can't rule over evil and hatred and lust and anger. We can't do it in the lives of others. We can't even do it in our own life. But the truly glorious, authentic human has put those things under his feet. He's ruled over those things. He has destroyed them at the cross. He has suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for you. Who am I? This psalm tells you that it tells you who you are by doing something so countercultural you'd only read about it in the Bible. The psalm tells you who you are by making you feel small in comparison to to God. And that actually gives you a huge sense of relief, don't you think? You don't have to be awesome or powerful or popular. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be super creative 
You don't have to be the best at whatever it is you're doing. God is already on the medal dais and there's no room for anyone else on there. He's in first place. Your friends aren't there with him, the people you think you're competing with. Your work colleagues aren't there with him. He's there by himself. And that's totally okay. You have been made to worship God, not to have people looking up and worshipping you. Who am I? Who are you? You are more glorious than you realise simply by being you, by being who you are, by being who God has made you to be, not in who others tell you you should be or in who you feel like you should be so that others can then tell you. Now this psalm is a psalm for people who know they are small and weak and powerless and failing. This is a psalm for people who know they're making a mess of ruling the world and they know they're making a mess of ruling their own life. This is a psalm for you. This is a psalm for people who know they're not the best they can be and that's totally okay. Because this psalm says your existence doesn't depend on what you can achieve or how you look. It depends on who you are as authentic, God-created, God-redeemed human beings. And Jesus says he has redeemed you. He's the one who lifts you up out of the dirtiness of cliques and likes and the hype of the world. And he recognises you in all your glory and he sees you for who you are and he says, I'm going to die for you. You are so glorious that I'm going to die so that you can be glorious into eternity. And then he rises again and he fills you by his spirit and he gives you something to live for that survives the disappointments of failed bookshops and of everything else that doesn't end up the way that we hoped it would. Let's pray. Loving, glorious, majestic Father, thank you for the treat it has been for us to spend time in this psalm today, to understand who we are, when we think of your glory and to be given this paradox almost of our smallness and our glory. And we thank you that in the Lord Jesus we are given a reason and a hope and we pray, Heavenly Father, that not only would we think of ourselves the right way but you would give us patience and wisdom and grace to love people who perhaps until today we'd thought of as being less glorious than us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.